Hey, my wife Cindy received in the mail this week her end-of-the-year report on a tiny, and I emphasize tiny, rollover IRA from when she was a teacher in Georgia. Her gains in that particular account were equally as tiny. No surprise, really. The U.S. market gained nearly 13% of value from 2015 through 2017. Last year, it lost 4%. But if you're reading your end-of-year statements, you know that already. It happens. Stocks, portfolios, retirement accounts, they rise and they fall. It did get her buzzing for a day or so about our financial future, something that I admittedly don't think enough about. Something that's really been on her mind, apparently, because in December, she led us to finally update our will. Now, I had a will, and you need one too, particularly if you live in the state of Florida. You don't want to die in Florida without a will. That's the only financial advice I know, but I know that. You don't want to die in the state of Florida without a will. I had a will, but I had not updated it in years, and I, I, I do at the same time have a very clear health care advanced directive. Do you know what that is? A health care advanced directive is the instruction that you give to your family and physicians should you be incapacitated and not be able to speak for yourself. And I've been very clear with my wife over the years. That if I am out in the yard on a hot summer day, working in the yard, and you come out, and I have collapsed into a heap, and you don't know how long I've been there, go back inside and have a beer. (laughs) And then call the coroner. Don't call an ambulance and then have them try to revive me and get me in some state between here and there. Because if you find me in that state, I'm already in pretty good shape. Now, to differentiate, if you see me collapse, call 911. (laughs) But back to the will. Why is my beautiful, young, healthy, whole wife concerned with an end-of-life plan? Is it because she is anticipating our impending deaths? No. We plan on living, not dying. To ensure that she is bestowed with my considerable fortune when I... Pass. Hardly. I told her this week that she would have just enough left over for a steak dinner so long as it was sirloin and not filet. No, we have lost young friends in the past year, suddenly. We have aging parents whose affairs, shall we say, are not quite completely in order. Cindy's main concern has nothing to do with our financials. It has everything to do with ensuring the least amount of chaos for whoever is left behind. We are all going to die. There is nothing especially morbid about that. It's natural. It's expected. And when we go, someone or someones will be left with what is left. Maybe it will be a fortune. Maybe it will be a stack of bills. It could be an orderly, clear set of instructions. Or it could be confusion and mayhem. Everyone wondering what exactly are the passwords to all of these accounts. If you have ever served as an executor for someone's estate, if you have ever had to sort through a loved one's life at the end, you know exactly what I mean. And it is a gift. It is a blessing to leave a little clarity behind you after you go. We don't always think like that, like my wife. What we think about instead when it comes to leaving something behind is the legacy piece. I want to leave my children a fortune. 
I want my grandchildren to enjoy this beach house that I have worked for. I want my descendants to get an inheritance. And that's all well and good, but it's not what life is all about, you know. Warren Buffett, who has hovered at the top of the richest person's list for decades now, has a great perspective on this. He said this years ago, I am leaving my children and grandchildren enough so so that they can do anything that they want to do, but not so much that they can do nothing. That's a pretty good perspective. Everything else in his fortune will be donated to better the world. And then some of us think about our legacy at a deeper level level still. How will I be remembered? Have I passed on honesty, integrity? Have I lived a life of influence? Will my children, my grandchildren, friends, family, think of me as a person of character or just as a character? After the will is read, the money is all spent, the bills are all paid, Will I leave behind the kind of moral and spiritual fortune that cannot be calculated by use of a spreadsheet or by an end of quarter or end of year financial statement? My maternal grandmother remains to this day to be the most influential person in my life. She died New Year's Day 2003, just months before my youngest son was born. He has never known her. And my older boys have only fleeting memories of her. But I hope, I pray, I intend that she continue to live through me. When her estate, if you can call it that, was liquidated, she had less than $500 to her name. But she had seven living children, had buried another, 19 grandchildren of whom I was the favorite. And I've lost count of all the great and great, great grandchildren. She was married to my grandfather, a wretched man plagued by depression and addiction and alcoholism. He was violent. He was abusive. But for a southern woman living in the middle of the 20th century with seven children on a cotton farm, escaping such a marriage was impossible. She persisted. She left a legacy of grace and patience and faith. At her funeral... One of the most profound things I have ever heard anyone say, my uncle, who is a Baptist minister, her oldest son, stood there in the church that day and said, my mother had two sons who became ordained ministers, a son-in-law who is a minister, a nephew who is a minister, four grandchildren who are ministers, but the greatest preacher in this family is lying here in this box with the life that she lived. And so I've often wondered, where does that kind of strength come from? Where does that kind of integrity and persistence come from? And I think it is a grace. I think it's a God-given thing, no doubt. But then, a couple years ago, as I'm getting older, I'm digging into older things, I came across her mother's mother's obituary, my great-grandmother. Her name was Ola. Ola Whitfield, she died at 36 years of age. My grandmother was only six, and the apple did not fall far from the tree. This is a part of that obituary printed in the local Calhoun Times, 1917, a hundred years ago. On April the 30th, the death angel visited the home of our brother Giles Whitfield. 
and called for the spirit of his dear wife, Ola. She had been sick for some months, but had borne her suffering with patience. She leaves a husband and seven children and a host of relatives and friends to mourn her death. She was a true wife, a loving mother. She professed hope in Christ in August of 1901 and joined the Baptist church at Antioch, the same church my grandmother's funeral would be held in a hundred years later. Oh, it was so hard to give her up, but she left behind true evidence of her faith. She called her husband to her side before she took her flight and told him that she would love to have stayed and helped raise the children, but she was ready and willing to go because she wanted the Lord's will to be done. Carry the children to church, she said, and to Sunday school, and then the most southern phrase ever spoken, and raise them right. And if you were raised right, you know exactly what that means. Such a consolation to hear her words, do the will of our Father. How does something like that not live on in generations to come? It has to. It is transferable. It is inheritable. It has sticking power. When you live a life of integrity, of honesty, of grace and love, of persistence and resiliency, you leave that behind and it will outlive you. Your children, your grandchildren, maybe even your great-grandchildren, your friends, your co-workers, they will all be left with that. They will inherit that. They will take it with them on their own journeys. And I promise you, I promise you, that such a legacy is more valuable and longer lasting than any trust fund, beach house, or annuity you might otherwise leave behind. Now, that brings us to our Bible story. It's a tale about a young man named everyone now. No, no, no. You're no better than the first service, just so you know that. Mephibosheth. Mephibosheth. Just get the word fib, like I'm telling a fib. If you hang on to that, you can do it. Mephibo. There you go. The story doesn't begin with him. It begins with his grandfather, King Saul of Israel. Everybody had a king back in those days, except Israel. And Israel wanted a king, and so they cry and whine about it a while. And God, like any good parent, gets worn down. Your kids ever wear you down? Yeah, yeah. And he says, fine, pick a king. And we want Saul. He was head and shoulders taller than the rest of his countrymen. He's this ultimate warrior type. He's a mountain of a man. He's a warrior. But he's not very smart. He's a miserable failure. He's insecure, he's paranoid, and spiritually speaking, about as dull as dishwater. And God finally says, as parents do, I gave you what you wanted, now I'm going to make the decision. And David picks the next king, and it's not a mountain of a man, it's not a warrior, it's an unassuming, heart-playing, songwriting shepherd boy named David. A young man who sprang onto Israel's national stage after that whole Goliath affair. You remember that story, right? A teenager able to kill giants with a few pebbles and rubber bands tends to get some attention. And it really got Saul's attention because Saul now understood that he was on his way out and David would replace him. 
It would not be the lineage of Saul, Saul's sons, who would carry on the throne. It would be David. What does the old warrior king do? He launches a campaign against David, trying to kill him. If I can get rid of this little punk, this young man, then my children will sit on the throne. I will leave the throne to them. David so respected Saul that he would not lift a hand against him. He would not enter a civil war, but held back, waiting for history to take its course. Well, as if his plate weren't full enough, Saul also has this ongoing war with the Philistines, or the Philistines, a neighboring tribe that was Israel's bitter enemies. Those same guys that Goliath belonged with. Boy, they're a bunch of thugs. And Saul is fighting them at the same time, and that's what happens. Here's this power-hungry man trying to leave something for his children, trying to hold on to everything, and he ends up fighting with everybody around him. And he comes to an end in 1 Samuel 31. Now the Philistines attacked Israel, and the men of Israel fled before them. Many were slaughtered on the slopes of Mount Geboa. The Philistines closed in on Saul and his sons, and they killed his sons. He saw them die. The fighting grew very fierce around Saul, and he was wounded severely. And rather, as a side note, than fall into the enemy's hands to be tortured or to humiliated, Saul took his own sword and fell on it. Saul, his three sons, and his troops all died together that same day. So the entire lineage of Saul has perished in one afternoon. No one is left. Except one child. This is Second Samuel 4. Saul's son Jonathan had a son named Mephibosheth. He was five years old when the report came that Saul and Jonathan had been killed in battle. When the child's nurse heard the news, she picked him up and fled. But as she hurried away, she dropped him and he became and now we arrive at the events of 2 Samuel 9 that Russ has already read for us. It's some 20 years after the death of Saul and Jonathan. David has been king of Israel this entire time. And of course, Mephibosheth is now a young man who had been completely forgotten, a tragic footnote to the tragic end of a tragic family. David, over 50 years of age, no longer the teenage giant killer, he has settled into his palace and most of his war making and his kingdom building has subsided. And he begins to reminisce about the past. And he remembers his best friend from his youth, Saul's own son, Jonathan. And he says, for the sake of my friend Jonathan, is there anybody left in Saul's household that I could do something for? A grandson, a great-grandson, a niece, a nephew, a third cousin twice removed by marriage. Is there anybody left? And they begin to look around and they say, yeah, there's one. He's a crippled young man hiding in the countryside named Mephibosheth. And David says, go get him and bring him here. So here he comes on his crutches. He has nothing. He is nothing. Born into royalty, he has the silver spoon yanked from his mouth before he even has a chance to taste the good life. He is an orphan before being six years of age. 
His father and grandfather had waged wars that he had nothing to do with, but he ends up paying for them. An incompetent nurse drops him literally on his head so that he never walks, runs, or plays again. And for 20 years, he hides in the back country of his grandfather's former empire, shuffling along on broken legs, praying that David or the Philistines or any of Saul's former enemies never track him down and take the final vengeance against Saul's family. And even his name reflects this state. Jonathan did not name him Mephibosheth. Who would? Jonathan named him Meribael. Oh, that's better. Meribael means warrior for God. And that's what they intended for this boy. That he would be like his grandfather. That he would be like his father. That he would be like his uncles. That he would grow up to be a warrior for God. But after his family met their demise on the mountain of Gilboa, and he was crippled, his name was changed. The Mephibosheth, which means the one who is ashamed. Every time he introduced himself to someone, he was declaring the disgrace and the humiliation that his family had suffered. And standing before David, he can only speak of himself. Did you hear how he spoke of himself? A dead dog like me. It's a horrible conclusion to come to about oneself. But considering the hard life that this young man had been forced into living, it's exactly how he felt. But David, David looked at this boy who had had everything taken away from him. And he took one more thing away from him. He took the shame away from him. Your grandfather's land, it's yours again. Everything that your father owned, it's yours again. Ziba, the servant guy with all those kids and servants, did you notice that in the text? Fifteen sons? I'm glad they didn't have car insurance back then. (laughs) This guy's going to work the land for you. And better yet, you're not going to live on that farm and work. You're going to live right here in Jerusalem. And every night at dinner, you're going to come here and sit at my table. And I will treat you as my son for all the days that I have left to live. So you can leave some things behind, and that's good. But there are some things you can take away from those you love. Shame. Humiliation. Stigma. Dishonor. If it is in your power to take these weights off of a person, your children, your grandchildren, any person you influence, then take that burden away that they might live in grace and freedom and restoration and peace. So what if you can't leave them a fortune? Leave them whole. Leave them forgiven and with a chance to flourish by what you take away. Undo, if you can, some of the pain that this world and circumstances and bad decisions and malicious people have inflicted upon them. Chuck Swindoll, who is a longtime Bible teacher and writer, has some of the best lines about this story, and I'll let him give the last word. And thankfully, I only have to pronounce this young man's name a few more times. 
David sent for Jonathan's son, Mephibosheth. When the young man arrived, he bowed trembling. In ancient days, when a new king took the throne, it wasn't uncommon for him to destroy every member of the former royal family. And being Saul's grandson meant he was as good as dead. But he knew nothing of David's kindness. David made sure that everything that had belonged to his family now belonged to him. In addition, the king promised that from then on, he would have a place at the king's table. So with a little imagination, we can picture a familiar scene in the king's royal residence. Gold and silver fixtures held the flaming torches that lined the palace walls. Lofty, hand-carved wooden ceilings crowned the banquet hall where David and his family gathered for their evening meal. It's supper time, and the call has gone out to all the family to gather around the table. In one chair sat tanned, Handsome Absalom, with his long raven locks of hair. Next to him sat his beautiful sister, David's daughter, Tamar. Across from her sat the young and brilliant Solomon. As David scans the room to make sure all his kids are present, everyone can hear the sound they have become accustomed to by now. It is the clump and the scrape, the clump and the scrape, echoing from the hallway of crutches coming to the dining hall. Finally, a young man appears on those crutches and slowly shuffles to his place. It's Mephibosheth, seated now at the king's table with the king's family. And once seated, the tablecloth of grace covers his broken feet. And it is no wonder that we call such grace amazing. 